Hi, this is Tina Black, and this is the B Series Podcast. Today, we'll be exploring untold stories of transformation and leadership. We hope you'll subscribe and check out the B books and send us your stories of transformation after listening. Okay, so this is part of my Be the Change series. And uh, as I was talking on Tuesday, I want to repeat myself. Um, The death of George Floyd has really opened up a lot of wounds that I believe for me, it's it's been a wake up call. I, uh, I can't even begin to tell you, I just this morning was looking at my journal and on May 24th, the day before George Floyd's death, I wrote down that uh, I prayed, I was praying that I would live life by the spirit. And I wrote down these, these couple prayers that I just wanted to share with you guys is uh, seeing things from others perspective. I was asking God to help me to see things from others perspective and that I would develop the heart of a servant and how can I help and add value to my leaders. And literally uh, just a few days ago uh, before I started the series, God woke me up and I had this, um, this serious awakening that I had never had in my life. And God just like really shook me. And he said, Tina, this is your Esther moment. This is not the time to be silent. This is the time to speak up. And I am learning so much right now, just in the past uh, four days, literally learning so much. And I wrote down my ultimate success mantra, and it was love, joy, peace, uh, forbearance, kindness, self-control, gentleness, faithfulness, and goodness. And I've been writing that over and over and over. And Then uh, I listened to Les Brown and I listened to John Maxwell, who are two of my uh, most favorite um, leadership coaches. And Les Brown said, there's three people in life, those who watch things happen, those who don't know what happened, and those who make things happen. And I said, you know what? I'm number three. I want to be one of the few of those to make things happen. And leaders lead, leaders speak up. Now is not the time to be silent. And he gave actually some really great tips that I'm going to add. But Tuesday on part one, I also had some, I have about eight different action plans because this is called be the change. How can we be the change? And so I'm developing a checklist of things to do. And I will be sending this out to every single person that I know. It'll go on all of my channels. So I want you guys to know, and I have here uh, some incredible friends. Uh, first, Barbara and Daniel Melvin. Barbara is a fellow John Maxwell coach. She's been on my podcast quite a long time ago, Barbara, and a lot has happened in your life since then. And we need to tell more of your story. Uh, But uh, the amazing thing is we're also business partners. We lead uh, leadership masterminds. And I can't wait to get back into those with you as well, too. And and her uh, incredible husband, who is also a vocalist, has the most incredible voice. We've actually had the opportunity, my husband and I, to sit uh, at, at the different places that he sings at and to listen to him as well. And then, of course, you're going to hear uh, from uh, fellow Paul Mitchell School owners that we've known each other for a lot of years. We've been at it from the very beginning together, Trina and Dante Carter. And then we're going to hear from Nicole and her husband, Orlando. And Nicole's podcast, I did actually 
uh, about a week ago, right, Nicole? And yeah. so that's coming out very soon. But that is going to come out after this one because this one is immediate. And we've got to get this out uh, tomorrow. So this is when this is coming out already. So um, first and foremost, uh, I want to ask you all, um, and I just, I, I humbly am going to just sit at your feet and just listen and hear what you all have to say. And uh, Barbara and Daniel, I want you guys to start first. And the question is for all of you is what is it like to be black in America? Tina, thank you so much for the opportunity to be here and to meet our um, other fellow people that will be joining us. It is really sometimes seem like a blessing and a curse to be black in America. For Daniel and myself, um, we have actually benefited from being black in America. You all may not know our story, but I was called from Detroit. I was a manager, vice president, working at a bank. And at that time, I was with, you all remember, Michigan National Bank. I worked at Michigan National, and I worked at NBC. And the bank in Florida called me in 2001 and said, we need someone to come here and help integrate the bank. I had never heard of Naples, Dan and I had never even heard of Fort Myers, Florida. And we were called to say, we need help. This is 2001 that said, we need help. Someone needs to come and help us integrate the bank. Because at that time, the banking industry realized there was no diversity. And to have not one black person to work at that bank in over 25 years, I'm a person that tried to be to bring unity. So I always try to, I always say unity in the community. And with Daniel and myself, we always try to bring people together so that there is an awareness. Now living in Collier County, it was, you know, at that time, I think 98% Caucasian. So we had to come here and help to introduce ourselves to the community that yes, not only are we black, but we're educated. We are, you know, we're here to help to bridge the gap between the black and white community. My, my father got pulled over many times by the police officers and we were coming from church and we got pulled over. So we have so many stories that's out there about just being black, living black every day. One, will I come home today? Will I be safe? Well, a little bit of background about me. I'm from Detroit, okay? He's from a small town in Virginia. I grew up in Detroit. Our black experiences start off differently right from the start. As I grew up in Detroit, you know, there was, a, there was a group of police officers called the Big Four. At the Big Four, they were at, at part of a stress unit. Okay, so being black in Detroit during that time when all this was going on was not a, not a, not a, not a great experience whatsoever. There were abuses going on then with the stress unit. Uh, uh, and, and if you see, if you ever watch the movie, you'll you hear about the uh, a motel called Algiers, where there were actual murders that were taking place within, within the Algiers motel. So during, so my black experience starting off in Detroit uh, is way different than hers. Now, when we got together and we came here, of course, uh, those differences made me a little bit hard being here. Realizing the situation a little bit different here and learning from her because I'm like zero tolerance when we first got here. She's from a Bible belt and her family is, you know, Christian, and everything, which is good. But our experiences were different. So my outlook was a lot different than hers at that time coming from Detroit with all the abuses and everything that took place. So uh, right now, uh, the experience is not as bad compared to my upbringing in Detroit. 
So now we're working to try to bring people together. And I would try to act in a manner that is opposite of what we are depicted as overall by some people as black people, because we have this uh, a stereotype, okay? So I do things on purpose to try to transcend that stereotype because I, because thinking back of the things that I went through in Detroit. So my black experience in America has been a mixed bag, okay? And I'm sort of glad of that because now they also helped me to grow as an individual so that I can help people of all, of all races too, which uh, I always say that some people don't understand the, the words and the uh, uh, initials for the NAACP because NAACP is it's about the advancement of colored people, not just black people, but people of color. But you know, but white people are in, in that mix as well too. So we're trying to we're just trying to do our part to make things better for everyone. But we know it's a mindset, and sometimes that mindset is very hard to transcend for some people. Some people's out of ignorance and things of that nature. So we're just trying to get past that. But uh, you know, that's sort of a background on on, on me and us. Okay, I love what you said to transcend the stereotype and it's out of ignorance, you said those two quotes. And how do we uh, shift that uh, to get rid of that ignorance? And I know this is part of you know what I'm doing right now, right? So exploding that and getting rid of that and just having uh, the hard conversations, having this conversation right now, which should have happened a long time ago. But as I mentioned, I said, I'm finally awakened to see the need for this. And so what is your thoughts, Daniel or Barbara? What is, what is the first step you think that needs to be taken for that to happen? Communication. I yeah. think the first step is honest <laughs> communication. And like you said, more white people have to come to the table. When yes. things don't happen until it hit white people and it hit you in the pocketbook. That's when things happen. Yes. When it's an economic downturn or if white people really their eyes are open like yours and everybody else, now things will change. Because 99% of the police officers do not get convicted. You can see the videos, you can see everything. That's why even now, we as black people, we don't believe it until they're convicted. 99% do not get convicted. So for us, it's like, oh, okay, is this another riot? Are people's eyes truly going to be open? And one thing that Dan and I would joke about, whenever we meet my, white people, they always say, oh, I got one black friend. I got one black, they always want to tell me the story of the one black friend. When now we're asking, how about having five black friends? How about having 10 black friends? When we're in a situation, they always want to say, the one black friend, I do it. So mm -hmm. that doesn't make them feel like, well, okay, I don't understand you because I got one. But we're saying, how about having more? How about you meet me? If you see me in a restaurant, when Dan sings at a restaurant, when he and I walk in, everyone's like, oh, what are they doing here? But then as soon as he starts singing, what they tell me? Oh, Barbara, we love you. We love you. And I'm like, well, how come you love me when I first walked through the door? Well, to, me, it, to me, I consider music and what I do as a door opener, okay? And, and once the door is open, that's when you can go in and start trying to make some things happen. So I use it that way, the door, because inevitably, like she says, if, my, if it's my first place, first time at a place like a country club, where there are people that got a lot of money and they're, they're privileged, stuff like that, okay? And they see, man, I've never been there before. But then they start to hear my voice, and, suddenly, and I think this is God sent for me, okay? That when they start to hear me sing, something happens. A door starts to open. Music, to me, universally, 
universal language? It's a universal thing that, in a lot of instances throughout history, it has been used to open up some doors. So I use it that way here, because once the doors open, then they want to talk. Because once they start talking, especially to her, when they start talking, some things with people that are open-minded start to develop. Things start to move, and then, and they start to listen. Once they start listening, then things can happen. That communication is very, very important. Communication is is the key to all of this. So then, so important when white people and black people get together that have communicated and they sort of understand, you know, especially the ones that are privileged, because now more people of privilege are coming out and saying, man, I didn't get it at first, but God, now I get it. Okay, I see it, tell me more. And you tell them more and they get to see more. Now the cameras are everywhere, they're beginning to see it also. So that's opening up that communication door even more now. And so now they're starting to come around. And when they join with us in protests and things of that nature, it's of a bigger impact and more people will start to listen. Now they see, oh, wait a minute, look who's with them now. And they, so something must be up, you know, so now that opens up another door. So they have to keep that going. The communication is, is very, very important. Yeah. And I believe right now there is a big awakening right now. That's what I'm seeing, you know, that there is a big awakening. And I love what you said, uh, that more white people need to come to the table, period. And so I have that down as an action plan as well, too. So Dante and Trina, I want to go to you guys next. Um, what is Thanks for joining today. And I just want to um, ask you guys, what is it like to be black in America? I would say starting back from childhood. I didn't, I didn't have any racism in childhood, but my mom told us stories and we watched movies about racism. So we, I didn't experience it. I just heard about it. So I kind of lived through what my mom experienced. She, um, we're from Mississippi. So she grew up in the fifties and sixties. So she dealt with a lot of racism and she told us, you know, her stories, which were heartbreaking, but I never experienced it. So I'm like, okay, I get it. But you know, things are different now is, is what I thought. It wasn't until I became an adult that I really recognized racism. Probably, I don't know if I was just oblivious to it or I was um, made to believe that it was gone, whether it be in my high school or in, in junior high, elementary. Um, we were really learning a lot about black history. You know, we were learning more about American history, which takes out black history. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't until maybe college that I started recognizing um, racism. You know, I went to Ohio State, predominantly a white um, university. And, and the first experience I had was I was in um, pharmacy school and um, I was still an underclassman, underclassman. And, and the white guy that was in pharmacy school told me I couldn't use the phone, like a phone in the hallway because I was black. And, you know, I was appalled and I'm like, what? But at that time I was, I was so shocked that I, I didn't even really say anything. Um, but a friend of mine jumped on the bandwagon and she laid him out. But that was the very first um, experience I had that I can remember because I had to, you know, think about what are my experiences been being black in America? Um, because I, I thought everything was just ordinary, like it's supposed to happen. Um, so that was my first experience. Second um, experience that I can think of 
is after I graduated from pharmacy school um, and um, being a pharmacist for quite a few years and, um, and, and a, a white woman asked for assistance. She wanted a counseling session. So I go over to her to give her a counseling session and she looked me straight up and down and looked around and was like, well, where's the pharmacist? And I'm like, well, I am the pharmacist. My name tag says pharmacist, registered pharmacist. And she said, you can't be a pharmacist. Did you go to school? And she started grilling me on me being a pharmacist. And then by, I mean, I explained everything to her. And then she said, well, I, I don't want to talk to you. I want the white man over there. So... Mm -hmm. That was my second, like, really strong experience. Um, and just even as a school owner, you know, I've, I've dealt with it as a school owner. A parent coming into my office, you know, asking for the owner because she's upset about her daughter and all of that. And, and she asked for the owner. And I said, well, I'm the owner. And she was like, well, you can't be in charge. I want the, mm -hmm. the real owner. So from my perspective, as, as a black woman in, in um, America, I've had experiences. It's a lot more, but um, those are my experiences. But from a mother, well, first from a wife and from a mother, um, just the experience of, of being afraid for him and him, you know? Sorry. Yeah. Um, yeah just raising my son and i said i've been saying it dante do we need to move out the country you know where do we go because at any given time him riding in a car he rode in a, he told me about a story where he we were coming from the beach and he drove my son he was still in in mm -hmm. I don't know, diapers or something and he said he got pulled over by the police and i freaked out because two black men in a car, you know, I freaked out. So I'm scared when they leave the house. I mean, I'm scared because I don't know if they were going to get pulled over, who the cop is going to be, if they're going to be a racist, if they're going to do anything to them. You know, I don't know. And so that's very, very scary on how do I raise a black son in America with all of this going on, you know, and, 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 you know, even for, you know, for, for me, two weeks ago, this is, this is how it happens so often. Two weeks ago, I'm driving in the car and I was um, having a, a conversation with my management team on the phone. I had it propped up the proper way, hands-free and all of that. Cop pulled me over and I freaked out. And my whole team was like, Trina, do not hang up keep the video on because it was on the videos can keep it on because you never know so it comes to things like that where you just never know i'm a black woman so i don't know you know i didn't get a ticket but um he was a very nice officer by the way but those are the types of things that you know i think being black in america we have to deal with every single day and the truth is it's a it's silence you know, it's an uncomfortable silence that sometimes we have to just be quiet about and just deal with it, you know? Mm. So from that, I, I don't want to take up all the time. I'm going to, you know, let my husband speak. But for me, that's, that's what, um, 
that's the beginning of being black in America for me. Yeah. You said something uh, before Dante speaks, you, you dropped a couple bombs, which are really amazing. And uh, you said that they, in American history, they took out black history. That sounds like an action plan that needs to happen yes. of, you know, in the school system. And so let's think about that. Right. So that's an awareness. And I loved that you said that your friend of yours laid out the guy that said you can't use the phone because you're black. And so we need to stand up for our brothers and sisters. We are our brothers keepers. And so we need to be more aware. So I think the awareness. And then when you were crying, I was crying. And I asked God, I just, I said this years ago, and it's coming into fruition right now is, you know, God, break my heart for what breaks yours. And this breaks God's heart mm -hmm. to hear these stories and the fact that you guys have had to keep them held in and be silent, like no more. And, and again, I just, the whites need to allow this to happen. They need to have this conversation and we need to come up with ways to be the change. Like we can't, this can't continue on. Thank you, Trina, for that. So, Dante, um, you're next. <laughs> okay. Well, once again, once again, thanking you uh, for, for the platform, Tina. Thank you for coming. Thank you for inquiring about it. Um, my experience, um, like Daniel's, I think mine's is a little bit more, I don't know, I realized it right away. I mean, I knew from very, I, I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, in, in the housing project where I was born. So, I mean... Right away, I, 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 I was experiencing things. I saw things. I, I heard things. And dealing with the police most of the times were, were it was negative things put in there to where we actually learned to be, to have a kind of um, latent fear of, of police right away. Whereas you try to give a police the chance to do what he's supposed to do, but it's, there's always that underlying you don't know. And you have to try to survive the moment if he seems to be a little agitated the thing is, is my mom taught me is not to get really, really big using your hand, hand movements, watch your voice, watch how you're moving, watch your eyes, don't let them be too shifty because it's little things like that that they'll key on to, to escalate it to a, to a, a, a point. Um, I can say for me, I mean, just, just dealing with the police myself as, as a kid coming up, it was, it was many, many instances. But just particularly, I can remember just being a little kid being chased from, I was, I went to Catholic school. I lived in the projects and I went to Catholic school. So I was getting it from the black kids too, because I was wearing bow ties and things like that coming home. So I had to fight and run from kids from that. But then sometimes we would get chased by the police for no reason, just because it's a crowd of kids walking and we would get chased and they would call us roaches, get these little roaches. And you would hear them mm -hmm. say that. And, and it was about running away from them to where the sick, the sick twisted part was, it was kind of a fun thing until you got caught. The fun exuberance came from, from running, you know, running your fastest, you running. And it was like, wow, you know, the excitement of that, the adrenaline, I guess it was. It, it was part of like a game, but if you got caught, it was trouble. Because we knew of a, of a place in Cleveland called the Flats. And the police would come in and they would take older guys, a lot of time the older guys, they would pick them up in the projects, take them down to the flats and, and beat them up and bring them back in the neighborhood and drop them off. They never went to the police station, 
Never was anything reported, but this was just a practice that we knew to happen, and we saw it happen many times. You would see a guy come back, and he got knots all on his head, his eyes black and stuff like that. But he's almost glad that he didn't have to go through the court system, you know, because they would threaten that kind of stuff to him, like, you're going to send you up to, you know, send you up to the county for a few months, or like that. He was almost better to take the butt whooping than to go to jail. It was just that kind of psyche, and you, like, growing up as a kid, that's what you had to deal with, like, wow, this is this is what this is how it has to be, and I can even remember one time when I was, oh, 19. I was after my freshman year of college. I went to college in the UPA, up in uh, uh up in Hancock, Michigan. I played basketball, and I was playing. I, I came home from the summer, and we were playing in a part of Cleveland that's mostly white, and we were running the courts. And by I me mean, running the court means we kept winning. It was like a group of black guys, and we kept winning the game. Somebody called the police on us. And as we were walking off the court, there was a guy in an unmarked van, had no idea. I walked out and I noticed a guy that just was really staring at me really intensely, just staring at me. And I'm like, wow, what, what are you looking at me like that for? You know. So he gets out of the car and starts walking towards us. So my cousin starts to go to try to reach for something that he can grab in his, in his car. And before he can get it out, I square it up because I'm thinking we're about to fight. And this guy says, this is what's up. You arrested. I said, for what? For disorderly conduct. I'm like, disorderly conduct? We were just standing right here. What are you talking about? Escalated. He handcuffed my cousin, slapped my cousin in the face while he was handcuffed, threw us both in the van, took us down, and I had to spend a whole year of probation from college going reporting to somebody for something that I didn't do. And they always try to get you to plead to a lesser charge. That was always a game, get you to plead to something lesser, just to keep you in the system, the the, you know, and um, it's just stuff like that, that that's happened many times, not just to me, just to my friends. I've seen my mother be arrested before. I've, I've, I've seen, like, people, uncles, like, you know, get arrested. Like, when we're having happy times, a good time, like we're at a park or something like that, and something happens and they'll come. And it's just seeing the police come and disturb, like, a, a really good event that's happening. And there's always some racial um, underlying tension in it. You know, I, I've seen a lot of that. But despite that, I always try to give a, a policeman a chance to be human. You know, I try to see if there's some shred of human in this person. And, and a lot of times there is. I can't say it's always bad, but I always try to give that because I have to because it's a survival technique. You know, there's no need for me to get irate because I know, I know right away what that's going to end up, you know, for me. So I, I've always tried to try to be that way. And one thing I think that we must um, go back to, like we were talking about black history in, um, in school. I didn't learn about black history until sixth grade. All the way up until sixth grade, all I learned was white history. And when I started learning black history, it just opened up something like a sense of pride in me to, to see that like black people have done things, that our, our history in America, it doesn't just, just start with slavery. There, was, there were people here before, black people here in America before slavery. History doesn't talk about it. They, they, they don't mention that. It's a lot of things that people like to dispute, but they, these things are, I think, are true. And I think in history, we need to look at history and go back to history and talk about people like, like the first martyr for the American Revolution. Do people know who that is? If I just say that off the top of my head, that, that's a trivia question. Most people wouldn't even know who that was. His name was Crispus Attucks. Yeah, um, you know, something I wasn't even aware of until uh, John Maxwell mentioned it was that George Washington 
didn't even want there to be two political parties. He was, he didn't want that to happen. And then obviously it happened, you know? And so it's kind of an interesting facet when you go back to history. And, and I think one of the, to be the change, we've got to study history and see yes. where it started and start having these conversations. Uh-huh. Right. Because it was a, it was a quote by a, um, a young lady by the name of Ida B. Wells, who was one of the founders of uh, the NAACP. She was a educator, early civil rights activist, and she was an investigative reporter back in the uh, late 1800s, early 1900s, which is all, which is incredible. But she had a statement that always sticks to me, and it says, those that commit the murders write the reports. I, I wrote down, you said something, uh, that it's a learned fear of the police, you know, and, and from day one that you had, you know, your mom was teaching you things. And, you know, I was not even aware of that until today that things like that happen. So thank you for making me aware of that as well. So let's go over to Nicole in Orlando and uh, maybe you guys can make me not cry, but I'm sure I will. <laughs> so for, for me growing up in America, um, it was, it was, it was, it was a good, it was good. It's good. Um, you know, I was, I grew up, um, I went to an, an elementary school. I went to a predominantly white school and the first time I was not the only black person in my class wasn't until fourth grade when I actually saw somebody else that looked like me in my classroom. Um, and I didn't think that bothered me until I had somebody else that looked like me in my classroom and how excited I remember coming home and telling my mom, you know, mom, I got a new best friend. And she's like, really? What's her name? I was like, I forgot, but she's black. <laughs> <laughs> and I just remember being so excited because you know, as, as great as my white friends were, even at that young of age, there were certain things that they could not identify with. You know, there were certain, when, when you talk about, and, and we did talk about um, history, but when we talked about history, as Dante said, it was only about slavery. And, you know, all of the things and, and you don't really think about it until, you know, you become an adult, but the way slavery and the, not necessarily slavery because slavery itself was a bad thing, but even the way they described the slaves at that time, you know, um, I can remember like feeling that the feeling that I had, I remember dreading history class because every time somebody said the word slaves, I felt like the entire class was looking at me. Mm -hmm. And my armpits would start sweating. And I would just like feel like I needed to shrink in my chair. And this is as a kid. And I never really understood, obviously until I became an adult, why that was. And I remember in the fourth grade when I had my friend in class with me and that happened she and I like locked eyes. And we, I can remember the first time that happened, we locked eyes and the entire time they were reading that paragraph, cause that's basically what it was. 
the whole time they were reading that paragraph, she and I just like locked eyes and we were sitting across the room from each other, but it was almost like we were embracing each other because mm-hmm. I'm sure she felt the same, you know, wanting to shrink and disappear that I was feeling. But for the first time in my life, I had somebody else to share that with. And we never talked about it, but that, that was the reality. Um, and then after that, you know, I never really felt like I um, experienced racism um, until after I graduated from high school. In fact, I, it was 91, 1991. Um, like Trina said, you heard the story. My grandmother and my mom and all her sisters, they were all um, activists and they marched and we heard the stories and you know we saw the movies and all of those things. But again, I never experienced any personal, uh, you know, any, any personal racism. Um, I didn't, I don't think. I, I probably did and just didn't even realize that it was going on. Um, but I, I think like Trina, I thought, you know, because everybody marched and all so much work had been done and the riots happened and, you know, so many laws had been changed. And I saw a lot of black people prospering and doing well. I thought the world had changed and things were different. And it wasn't like it like it used to be until I think my first realization was when I saw Rodney King. Mm-hmm. When I saw that happen, um, it just broke my heart. And I knew without a shadow of a doubt, oh my God, this is a crime. These men are going to jail. They're going to jail. There's no way, shape or form that they would ever be able to be acquitted for this. It's on television. The whole world is seeing what's going on. And that's when I really started hearing like from friends and family members, their experiences on this going on at that time, even then. And I, I remember being almost in shock because I had never personally experienced it. Of course, I got, you know, the talk from my mom and my dad about how to act if you're stopped by the police. And I can even remember when they were telling us that, um, I would always kind of, I never said it out loud, but thinking in my head, I mean, they're just saying that because they were in knee deep, you know, in the, the, the civil rights movement. So it's, they still feel like that they still need to tell us that. And then I saw that right before the whole world's eyes. So I didn't become angry until they were acquitted. Mm-hmm. When they were acquitted, to me, that was the biggest slap in the face that things had not changed. That was the biggest slap in the face for me. So that was just, I mean, I graduated in 85 and that happened in 91. So that, I was a young adult at that time. And so I think my reality and my perspective of America changed when that happened because number one, that was not a jury of his peers. At, at, when at first I thought it was, I didn't think it really mattered what color they were on that jury because I knew that 
the evidence was the evidence and there was no way they could not find him guilty. There was no way, I don't care what color they are, they're going to see the injustice that happened and they will acquit him. Justice will prevail and it didn't. And that for me, it just, that, I think that changed my life in terms of my perspective of how this world really is. Um, moving, you know, jumping ahead, um, as you said, Orlando and I are school owners. And it's interesting because, you know, as school owners, we are always, you know, encouraged when we have um, prospective students come in and introduce yourself as the owners and, you know, just to let you know, let them know that the owners are in the building and we spend time there. Um, we have a pretty racially balanced school and, you know, everybody, literally, it's very, very diverse. We have a little bit of everybody in there from inner city to trust fund babies to, you know, black, white, across the board, which, you know, all of our schools do. Um, but Orlando and I have made it a, a conscious decision. We don't introduce ourselves until the first day of school, the first week of school, because it's a very, very real possibility that somebody, no matter how good our school looks, no matter how amazing our curriculum is, no matter how many people in that school tell them it's a great place to be and a great place to start your career, they may not come simply because the owners are black. And we realize that. So we do not introduce ourselves until the first week of school. <clears throat> and the shock, I've seen the like physical shock on some people's faces like, wait, you're the owner? Wow, well, I had no idea. Owner. I had no idea. You, you said something that I, I, I heard you say, and it starts in grade school. And so thinking about, you know, how could, let's say, the print, it starts, everything rises and falls on leadership. And I talked to my salon team and I want you to know, I, they're, they're predominantly white. They're young white girls. And I said, you guys, we, and they agreed with me. And I said, this is my fault. And I said, it starts in the schools and I'm going to make some shifts. I'm working with my directors. I'm working with my leaders. I'm going to be talking to all of my African-American staff and we're going to make shifts. And I'm going to tell you right now. So I'm already going to be in the change in my companies and my entire salon team applauded. And they were like crying. They were so happy that I took that stance. And I just said, listen, you're not making them feel comfortable when they come into our salon to shadow. And I said, That's, it starts with me. And uh, I'm just asking you to be even more intentional and to come alongside them and to just like ask them all the time to come in because we've had a lot of African-Americans come into our salon to shadow and I bet many of them want to work with us and be our partners because we only hire future partners. And, uh, and they were like, yes, we are 100% behind you. We weren't even aware that we were doing this. And so they're awakened. They're, they're fully awakened. And then Dale Jones said, 
he's the keeper of the culture of his business and he walks in and he's like, Hey, you guys, we need more coffee and the cream or we need more cream and the coffee. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, I didn't even think of it. So I'm like, that's immediate culture shift that I'm going to make in my companies. And, um, and as the owner, guess what? You're the keeper of this. And so, you know what? It's time. It's time. You know, it's 20. I don't even know the year. <laughs> 2020. <laughs> I don't know the year, but vision, like I can see now. And Barbara, I know you have a huge story about the seeing, right? Cause she just lost eyesight in one of her eyes. And I can see now, like I have this double, this vision. And so um, through that process, but Orlando, I want you to tell your story, what it's like to be black in America. We're going to bring um, it home, home with you. Bring, bring it home. <laughs> Thanks again, Tina, for, for allowing us, you know, this opportunity to, you know, just to kind of, you know, give our perception of, you know, what it is to be black in America. Um, you know, one thing that you hit on, you know, I, I think it's real key is, and, and it's almost like how, how for me, how I, how, I, how I approach everything that I do, I try to put myself in the other person's shoes with my marriage, with my friendships, with my, the way I raise my kids. I try to put myself in their shoes to, to feel, you know what I mean? So with, with that being said, you know, it, it's unfortunate that it is, and it has been for quite some time, just an unfortunate situation that, that we're dealing with right now. Um, for, for me, through naivety is, I was probably more afraid of my mama than the police, <laughs> okay? <laughs> what would my mama do to me that kept me on the, the straight and narrow? And I think that that helped me kind of, you know, walk down the right street, make the right decisions, you know? Um, because she always told me, you know, no matter what, people that don't know you, they're gonna lump you in with everybody that looks like you, no matter what. So with that being said, just, just be aware of your surroundings. She says, you know, things like, you know, you're gonna be called racial slurs. This is gonna happen. Um, you're gonna be followed in the store unnecessarily. Um, you know, when you get on elevators, people are gonna clinch their purses. When you're walking down the street, they're gonna cross the street just so they won't have to come into your path. Um, you know, even to this day, you're gonna be accused of not being able to afford something that you want. And I mean, it's just, it's just crazy. Um, and one thing that I've gotten from this is it, it, it makes me upset to the point where I have to kind of push back or pull back because if I'm ever stopped, um, like a traffic stop, I get more upset of being stopped. Like, you know, why, why are they pulling me over? But I have to now take a step back and say, you know what, let me, let me reflect here and let me just kind of calm down because I don't want to say anything that gives them a reason because the traffic stop won't be the reason. It's whatever I say, my response to the traffic stop is what will give them the reason, the probable cause to take me to where they want to take me. So I had to, I had to consciously tell myself, relax, you know, and it's unfortunate that we have to do that. Um, one of the things that, you know, my mom always told me, she said, to make sure to judge people 
by not the color of their skin, but the content of their character. And that's what I try to do. And it's just unfortunate that we don't get the same reciprocation. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's what being black in America is to me. Yeah. Like my man said, you know, he had to calm himself down, you know, bring things down. And you, cause you have to be able to maintain past that. Okay. And uh, uh, don't allow that to disrupt the process in which you're trying to, to do this because the process is what's important, not the disruption. Okay. You're going to, we're going to get that. So we have to bypass the disruption and, and stick to what we're trying to do because there's always going to be people like that. We were at a church one time, NAACP gave this uh, 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 a little talk, okay, at this church. And this one guy, one guy stood up. It was a white person and it was a mixed, it was, it was a mixed crowd like it was supposed to be. But one guy got up and he said something that had the entire place erupt. And that's simply because he spoke up and he said, well, look, um, you know, I've always heard that, you know, the reason for this or that's because this black people are just so, so damn lazy. Okay. Now, when he said that. In church. In church. Okay. In church. It's a little disruption, but, you know, it, it caused sparks of things that happened at the same time from white and black people because they didn't like what he said. Okay. Because people that were there that were open-minded. But what happened was he was not allowed, that disturbance was not allowed to take control over what had what was going on there and what was so they very intelligently uh 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 i think it was uh the, the president the president and he closed them down okay the one question he closed them down and did not and did not allow that to disrupt things okay the other people chimed in from that which was good which were other white ladies in the back and they were upset and they were crying and they, and they asked the guy, so have you read this book? Have you seen this? Have you did it? You need to educate yourself. And the guy turned, he, I mean, he turned red as a fire engine. Because okay? he, he, was, he was embarrassed, okay? But that's what you have to do in these communications because there's always going to be somebody like that. You need to be able to calmly shut them down, okay, so that the process can still take place and grow from the benefits of what's going to come from that. Because there's always wow. going to be Okay, this is really powerful. So calmly shut down the disruptors. Like leaders got to lead. Like you've got right. to know what's going to happen and be prepared for the right. disruption. That is. Have you heard of racial gaslighting? Mm -hmm. Have you heard that term? So I posted it on my Instagram yesterday. I got it from uh, Patrice Washington. To make a long story short, she reposted a speaker that talked about racial gaslighting. And so I think be aware of the disruption, also be aware of the racial gaslighting and taking the focus off what needs to be focused on right now, you know? And it's, um, here's some ideas of things that racial gaslighting is. Uh, what I said did is not racist. Racism doesn't exist anymore. Uh, it was a joke, calm down. Um, blank people are racist too. Why is it always about race? Are you sure that's what happened? Well, just to play devil's advocate here. Well, in my opinion, I don't think that they were being racist. I think you fill in the dots, right? And she just said, these are tender reminders for these people. Um, do not let anyone tell you how to feel about something they have never had to experience in their body. 
these are great leadership principles when you're coaching. You know, I was telling my staff, I said, I feel like I'm going to be a much better coach, a much better leader right now uh, because of this whole situation. And she said, do not exhaust yourself arguing with someone who is more concerned about not being called racist than simply doing the work to be anti-racist. That was huge. And then lastly, do not spend any time trying to prove why someone is racist. Your experience is your expertise. Period. You can drop the mic on that one because I was like, okay, I'm reposting and re-speaking this. And uh, yeah, we need to get this word out. And can I bring one more thing in? Yeah. Yeah, please. And and this is an experience that I had. I was in, me and Barbara used to go to this place here. uh, on a regular basis, because a friend of mine who I met down here as a professional singer was introducing me around the people. So he said, come to this, come to this uh, uh, place because we have entertainment and I'll let you sing. You know, people can get to hear you and you'll meet other people. And it was called Grecian Gardens, as a matter of fact, okay. And so Barb and I became regulars going in there, okay. And then you have snowbirds, of course, come in that, that when they're here, they go there because it was a popular place. So one day I came in, it was crowded, and uh, normally I sit with a table of friends and everything, but the place was crowded, so I'm sitting at, uh, standing at the bar, uh, waiting for a place where so I can sit with some of my friends, and it's predominantly white. I mean, it's always predominantly white down here, okay? So mm-hmm. <laughs> it's predominantly white. Mm-hmm. So I'm standing at the bar. You know, you can tell when somebody's staring at you. You just feel it on the back of your neck, okay? So this guy was staring at me, and I turned around and said, hi, how are you? I've never seen him before. So after two minutes of that, I turned around and, and, and said, well, he's staring at me. I'm going to start talking to him. But I turned around and said, hey, how are you doing? Da, 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 da. And so he hesitates and he says, you're black. <laughs> and so some friends of mine were sitting there and they heard that. And I could tell by the expression of their faces, and these are white friends, okay? They were like outraged that he said that. So he, and I asked, him, what did you say? He said, you're black. So then I turned to the bar, the barmaid, so I know, and I, I said, I covered up and said, Jamie, come here. I said, all this time I've been coming in here, why do you tell me I was black? <laughs> so the place erupted and exploded with laughter. This guy was embarrassed, so embarrassed, okay, that he left, okay? Good. So I utilize things like that when people produce ignorance to me, mm-hmm. and they say things like that, mm-hmm. especially if I'm a, I'm a jokester anyway, so if I'm in a jovial mood, you know, that's how I, I respond, and I'll do things to put people, things in right in their face that they'll they'll know from their reaction that they were, you know, they should not have done that. So there are different ways to handle it. But I, I thought that was, I tell this story all the time because the response mm-hmm. is so like, outstanding that I, I love it. That's incredible. Yeah, you're a comedian too, aren't you, Daniel? That uh, <laughs> <laughs> take you in trouble. But, uh, <laughs> I love you guys so much. Tina, I know you got to wrap it up, but for you, Tina, when you look in here and you're looking to diversify your salon, bring mm-hmm. a black person in. The one question that Daniel and I get all the time, where are the black hairstylists? There are none here. We will, I will go to Detroit. I will fly to Detroit every weekend if I could to get my hair done. Yes. There's no black hairstylist here. So when you are looking to diversify your team, you do need someone that looks like somebody in the community. So I would say definitely diversify your team here. Yes, that is definitely on the forefront of our minds and the conversation. So, and I want to talk to Dante and um, 
and to Trina and Nicole in Orlando about that too, because they're in the, the school business. So I know we'll continue to brainstorm and have this conversation. But Dante and Trina, as you, as you are hearing uh, some of these ideas to be the change, what do you think is missing that we need to add? Um, and the quote that my mom um, had told me a long time ago, you know, when, when I, whenever I dealt with racism or whenever I've dealt with, you know, just the anger and frustration of it. Um, and I forgot about this quote until she just said it the other day. It's, it's by James Baldwin. And it says, I can't believe what you say because I see what you do. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people will say things and say, mm-hmm. I'm not racist. And, you know, I have black friends and, you know, my favorite, my you know best friend is black. But you know, that, that quote means a lot. You know what I mean? We can sit here and we can talk about what we're going to do and so we can speak it, but the action speaks louder than words. So Dante, can you think of anything that we've missed on our, to be but the just, game? As yeah. far as what, what needs to happen, I think, I think um, we need to concentrate more on the legislative we need to get, get more into finding out who our senators and uh, representatives are and what they are and getting more behind them and, and putting more more action towards like uh, awareness towards voting and all that kind of stuff and putting information out about them because those are the people that's going to make the laws. Yeah. You know, um, and that's like, and it's right now. It's, it's no more waiting. It's no more waiting for things. It's like things have to happen right now. Mm-hmm. And I think what I what makes me seem look look to the future is that I guess and I'm gonna say this because of things like hip hop and, and stuff like that, it's starting to bring white kids into black culture. Some things good, some things are bad, but they're starting to understand certain things and they're they're having more apathy in this generation than the past generation. And when I look at these protests, I see a lot of I see a lot of white kids out there also more so than we saw in the 60s. And I think that's the beginning of it. And we need the people that's true to it. We don't need the detractors, the ones that are out there doing things like tagging and they're not really about the message or they're trying to stir up things. We need to bring awareness to that that is happening and we need to show that also. Um, and I got a quote that I want to read before I'm done. This is, um, this is from Albert Einstein. And, and this quote was, the world will not be destroyed by those who do evil, but those who watch them without doing anything. Mm. And I think that's just so poignant because that's what it is. So silence, you know, we, we have more people, we probably have less people doing the evil, but we have more people watching it. Yeah. Yeah, don't be a bystander. Stop watching. Yeah. You gotta get That's finished. so good. Yeah. And we got, we got to get this right. And, you know, I think uh, the people that are making the ignorant statements of all lives matter, which, like you said, we understand, you know, that all lives matter. But and I love what someone said recently, all lives won't matter until black lives matter. Like, hmm. let's make the main thing the main thing right now. Stop going off on tangents. This is the main thing. This is the issue. Nicole in Orlando, what did we miss? <laughs> You know, um, you said something that was just so poignant. Um, churches and salons are probably the two most segregated yes. things that we have in our country right now. Yes. And so I would just encourage 
all of us, you know, to be, to be, to, to be, to be willing to be uncomfortable more. Mm -hmm. Because I think that's where the education, the real education is going to come. I think the uncomfortability is going to come with having the dialogues. Mm -hmm. You know, one of my leaders said to me again yesterday, um, her father is from the country, you know, middle-aged man, you know, white man that, you know, she's like, he doesn't have a racist bone in his body, but he would say ignorant things sometimes. And I would have to, she says, she would have to say, dad, you can't say that. And he was like, well, why? And she try and explain it to him, but she has a lot of diverse friends and always has growing up. So she, he actually lives in Florida now. And she said for the first time ever, he called her and they were on the phone for over an hour. And he, she said, it seemed like he asked her every question that he ever wanted to ask mm -hmm. and wanted to know about black people that he never felt comfortable asking. Mm -hmm. And she was just like, dad, I'm so proud of you. I'm so proud of you for asking these questions. He's like, well, I mean, I just didn't know. She said, I know you didn't know, but good for you for willing to find out. And I think sometimes it's really just that simple. It's just ask the question, just be willing to, to, to be uncomfortable for a little bit. It's okay. Cause that's where the real true growth is going to come from is being uncomfortable and be willing to put yourselves in those situations and having those conversations. So good. Yeah, I think you just, you brought a huge awareness, Nicole, that churches and salons are the most segregated. Mm -hmm. And now that you hit that, it's so true. And it, we need to be the change. We need to be the change. We're so. in a perfect situation to do we that. Are. And, and we yeah. do, I think we do a good job at trying to, to, to educate everybody on all different textures of hair and that sort of thing. I know I was behind the chair for 15 years. If I just did one texture of hair, if I just did black people's hair, I would have split my income in half, mm -hmm. literally. And I tell my students that all the time. You greatly limit yourself and your, your income potential if you only know how to do one texture of hair. Get everybody's money. Get everybody's everybody. Money. Everybody. That's <laughs> <laughs> so true. We just talked about that with our salon team because my daughter's the only one who knows how to do textured hair. And crazy enough, months ago, she bought them all a, a textured doll hair on mannequin. And now the why is so big for them to start practicing. Before, it was just setting to the side. But you said it right. And they all said it that we need to get comfortable being uncomfortable. And, you know, every time that, you know, someone would come into the salon, they'd be like, Brianna can do it. Brianna can do it. And she's like, I'm done now. You guys are doing it. So get comfortable right. being uncomfortable. So, I mean, for, for me, you know, I'm, I'm in the, I'm in the solution oriented thought process of it. You know, how yes. do we fix this problem? You know what I mean? Because the bottom line is you cannot stop a person's mind. A person's going to think how they think, act how they act, that's on them. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you're never gonna change that. You're never gonna change someone from thinking the way that they think. 
All you can do is create policy that can combat not their thought, but their actions because of their thoughts. And that's why leadership, you know, who we vote for is so very important. So now I know that those will be some of the questions that I will now ask our potential, you know, Congress people and senators before I vote for you, what's your stand on this? Yes. You know, and now yes. and, after, and after they give that and holding them accountable to making sure that they're putting those policies in place that actually address these these issues. You were born for such a time as this because you were in the police department. Like that's incredible. And so I think this is so cool because we brought it home with the right person. And I think mm -hmm. it goes back to, you know, it goes back to what I said earlier, but Les Brown said it, it has to start with police reform. So you're telling me things that I don't know anything about and shame on me that I don't even know that. And so now it's about awareness and it's about education and knowing that and getting through this. So I think, I honestly believe that you could really help um, and we can continue this brainstorming. And I love this, just the mere fact for what we could do differently in our Palmetto schools. How can we be better with our one size fits all culture? How can we make it even better? And then also how can we start this on our own local level right here, right now, right where we're at? I just want to say, this is this is something somebody said and it sounds sound very poignant and say, if we're going to fix the U.S., we got to start with the first two letters. Yes, us. Yeah, we're going to fix the U.S. We have to start with us. Yep. I love this. That's beautiful. You guys perfectly said, and, you know, I've been saying this for years, but it means more now. And as we close this out, you know, whatever the question, the answer is love. And if you want to be a leader, you've got to influence people. How do you influence people? By believing in people and, you know, valuing people and unconditionally loving people. So thank you guys so much. I, I love you so much. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to send us your stories of transformation through www.tinablack.net. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to give it a rating and subscribe. See you next time.